0: Section one of the Roman Empire of the Second Century or the Age of the Antonines by William Wolfe Capes. This is a Librivox recording. All Librivox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by Pamela Nagami Chapter one Nerva AD ninety six to ninety eight before the murderers of domitian raised their hands to strike the fatal blow they looked around we read to find a successor to replace him others whom they sounded on the subject shrunk away in fear or in suspicion till they thought of marcus cacaeus nerva who was likely to fill worthily the office that would soon be vacant little is known of his career for more than sixty years till after he had twice been consul and when his work seemed almost done he rose for a little while to take the highest place on earth. The tyrant on the throne had eyed him darkly, had banished him because he heard that the stars pointed in his case to the sign of sovereign power, and indeed only spared his life because other dabblers in the mystic lore said that he was fated soon to die. The sense of his danger, heightened by his knowledge of the plot, made Nerva bold when others flinched, so he lent the conspirators his name and rose by their help to the imperial seat. He had dallied with the muses and courted poetry in earlier days, but he showed no creative aims as ruler and no genius for heroic measures. The fancy or the sanguine confidence of youth was checkered perhaps by waning strength and feeble health, or more probably a natural kindliness of temper made him more careful of his people's wants. After the long nightmare of oppression caused by the caprices of a moody despot, Rome woke again to find herself at rest under a sovereign who indulged no wanton fancies, but was gentle and calm and unassuming, homely in his personal bearing, and thrifty with the coffers of the state. He had few expensive tastes, it seemed, and little love for grand parade, refusing commonly the proffered statues and gaudy trappings of official rank. As an old senator, he felt a pride in the dignity of the August Assembly, consulted it in all concerns of moment, and pledged himself to look upon its members' lives as sacred. A short while since, and they were cowering before Domitian's sullen frown, or shut up in the Senate House by men-at-arms, while the noblest of their number were dragged out before their eyes to death. But now they had an emperor who treated them as his peers, who listened patiently to their debates and met them on an easy footing in the courtesies of social life. He rose above the petty jealousy which looks askance at brilliant powers or great historic names, and chose, even as his colleagues in the consulship, the old virginius rufus in whose hands once lay the imperial power had he only cared to grasp it nor was he haunted by suspicious fears such as sometimes give the timid a fierce appetite for blood for when he learnt that a noble of old family had formed a plot against his life he took no steps to punish him but kept him close beside him in his train talked to him at the theatre with calm composure and even handed him a sword to try its edge and temper as if intent to prove that he had no mistrustful or revengeful thought there were many indeed to whom he seemed too easy-going too careless of the memories of wrong-doing to satisfy their passionate zeal for justice there were those who had seen their friends or kinsmen hunted to death by false accusers who thought that surely now at length they might wreak their vengeance on the tyrants bloodhounds the early days of Nerva's rule seemed to flatter all their hopes, for the prison doors were opened to let the innocent go forth, while their place was taken by spies and perjurers, and all the harpies who had preyed on noble victims. For a while it seemed as if the days of retribution were at hand, but the emperor's gentle temper or the advice of wary counsellors prevailed. Nerva soon stayed his hand and would not have the first pages of his annals scored in characters of blood. To many, such clemency seemed idle weakness. Pliny, humane and tender-hearted as he was, reflects in his familiar letters the indignation of his class, and sorely frets to think of the great criminals who flaunted in the eyes of men the pride of their ill-gotten wealth. He tells with a malicious glee the story of a supper-party in the palace, the name of a notorious informer happened to come up and first one and then another of the guests told tale after tale of his misdeeds till the emperor asked at last what could be done with him if he were living still whereupon one bolder than the rest replied he would be asked to supper with us to-night and indeed close beside nerva there was lolling on the couch an infamous professor of the same black art we may read too in a letter written long afterwards to a young friend how pliny came forward in the senate to laud the memory of the great helvidius and brand with infamy the wretch who caused his death at first he found scant sympathy from those who heard him some troubled with a guilty conscience tried to drown his voice in clamor On the plea that no notice had been given of his motion. Some begged him not to raise the ghosts of worn out feuds, but to let them rest in peace awhile after the long reign of terror. Wary friends, too, warned him to be cautious, lest he should make himself a mark for the jealousy of future rulers. But Pliny was resolute and persevered. The consul who acted as speaker in the Senate silenced him indeed at first but let him rise at length in his own turn, and leaving the subject then before the house, speak for the memory of his injured friend, till the full stream of his indignant eloquence carried the listening senators along, and swept away the timid protests raised for the accused. The emperor stepped in, and stayed proceedings in the senate, but the orator recalled with pride in later years the enthusiasm which his vehemence had stirred and felt no throb of pity in his kindly heart when he was told that the wretched man whom he accused was haunted soon after in his dying moments by his own stern look and passionate words but nerva was determined to let the veil fall on the past he raised no question about the favours and the boons of earlier rulers but respected the immunities and dispensations however carelessly bestowed. There were still three powers that must be reckoned with before any government could feel secure—the populace of Rome, the frontier legions, and the Praetorian guards. The first looked to be courted and caressed as usual, but the treasury was empty and Nerva was too thrifty to spend lavishly on the circus or the theatres or the processions which helped to make a Roman holiday. Still he was careful of the real interests of the poor. He gave large sums for land to be granted freely to the colonists who would exchange the lounging indolence of Rome for honest industry and country work. Where funds were wanting for this purpose, he stripped the palace of its costly wares and sold even the heirlooms of his family, and gave up houses and broad lands to carry out his plans for the well-being of his subjects. To show that such self-sacrifice was due to no caprice of passing fancy, he had the new name of the palace of the people set up in characters which all might read upon the mansion of the Caesars, while the coins that were struck in his imperial mint bore the old name of liberty upon their face for he tried says tacitus to reconcile the claims of monarchy and freedom the two things found incompatible before the distant legions had suffered little from domitian's misrule his father and brother had been generals of mark and the thought of his own inglorious campaign soon faded from their memory they knew him chiefly as a liberal paymaster and indulgent chief and they heard with discontent that the flavian dynasty had fallen and that rome had chosen a new ruler the soldiers on the danube broke out into open riot when they heard the news and talked of marching to avenge their master but by good hap a certain dion a poor wandering scholar was at hand driven by the fallen tyrant into exile as a philosopher of note he had lived a vagrant life upon the frontier working for a paltry pittance as a gardener's daily drudge and carrying in his little bundle for the solace of his leisure only the phidon of plato and a single oration of demosthenes roused now to sudden action by the mutiny among the legions he flung aside like the hero of the odyssey the rags that had disguised him and gathering a crowd together he held the rude soldiers spellbound by the charms of an eloquence which had won for him the name of Chrysostome or Golden Mouthed, while he called up before their fancy the outrages that had wearied a long suffering world, and armed against the despot the foes of his own household. So Dion's well turned phrases, on which his biographer dwells with admiring pride, soothed the excited mutineers, and caused the bonds of discipline to regain their hold but the praetorians were dangerously near to rome and had already learnt their power to set up or to dethrone their rulers their generals-in-chief had taken part in the murder of domitian and had influence enough at first to keep their troops in hand and make them swear fealty to another emperor but discontent soon spread among them the creatures of domitian plied them with intrigues and found mouths ready to complain of scanty largess. And of slow promotion under the influence of the new regime. The smouldering fire soon burst into a flame. The guards marched in open riot to the palace with ominous cries and clamoured for the murderers' heads. It was in vain that Nerva tried to soothe their fury. In vain he bared his neck and bade them strike. The ringleaders would have their will and drag their victims off to death before the feeble emperor's eyes. Such a confession of his weakness was fatal as he felt to his usefulness as a ruler. He knew that stronger hands than his were needed to steer the state through the troubled waters, and he resolved to choose at once a worthy colleague and successor. He chose, with a rare unselfishness, no kinsman or intimate of his own, not even a noble of old Roman lineage, but a soldier of undoubted merit, was then in high command among the legions on the German frontier. A few days afterwards the emperor made his way in state to the temple on the capital to offer thanks for the news of victory just brought from Pannonia to Rome, and there, in the hearing of the crowd, he adopted Trajan as his son with an earnest prayer that the choice might prove a blessing to the state. Then in the Senate House he had the name of Caesar given to his partner in the cares of office, and that done, soon passed away from life after sixteen months of rule, which served only as a fitting prelude to the government of his successor. End of section one.